0: Mr. Speaker, not, Mr. Speaker, we'll put the chair, we'll put Mr. In. Speaker, Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed.
1: We've
2: created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye.
0: We have a deal on a spending bill hello and welcome back to another episode of control a podcast looking down the road at the issues and conflicts that will define the new congress in 2023 i'm one of your hosts annalise keller
2: and i'm your other host brendan buck very timely show today we never doubted them the appropriators reach a deal on a top line number for the omnibus setting the stage for passage of ukraine aid and the electoral count act Also this week, serial interview giver Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested and thus managed to avoid testifying at the House Financial Services hearing on crypto. And the New York Times is reporting that Donald Trump is making calls on behalf of Kevin McCarthy in his effort to get the votes to be the next Speaker of the House. All stuff right in our wheelhouse. Uh, But perhaps the thing I'm most excited about today is our focus on the topic that everyone in town is talking about, oversight.
0: Yes, we're really excited to have Mark Epley join today's episode Uh, Mark is a former general counsel to Speaker Ryan and former staff director of the Oversight Subcommittee on Ways and Means. He's going to talk all things oversight, both what issues McCarthy will take up, but also how they might approach and manage this sprawling oversight agenda.
2: All right. So they're only several months late, but appropriators announced this week they have a deal on the top line For an omnibus bill which is all very exciting we should note that is like the very first step you have to do there is still a lot of work to be done uh it's telling that we don't have a lot of details yet on what that's going to look like there is still uh thousands of pages of underlying bill that needs to be sorted out but by all indications they're going to figure this out uh we are hearing i guess that the senate is likely to go first uh on a vote probably sometime next week. Very big open question as to how long this is going to take. I can't imagine this is going to be a very popular deal with Senate conservatives. So getting their cooperation to move it quickly, I think is an open question would not actually surprise me if they don't uh, make it done uh, in time for for Christmas next week and might have to come back right after Christmas to get it done. Um, Typically, when you get close to these things, they find a way to, to get it done. But this may be a slow process. It may be a really Ugly vote in the in the Senate and particularly in the House. I think this is going to be a fascinating vote in the House. It's worth noting that this is a deal between the top Republican and Democrat in the Senate and the top Democrat in the House does not include the top Republican in the House. Um, As we've talked about, there's no way that Kevin McCarthy can be for this bill, even though it clears the deck for him. He's going to have to be very against it. And there's just really no incentive if you're a House Republican, politically anyway, to be voting for this. So it looks like the House is going to have to pass a bipartisan, multi-trillion dollar spending bill all on their own. And right now, the House Democrats only have a two-seat majority. Um, They had a member pass away, some absences. Uh, there is a very, very thin majority. I, I just—it's going to be amazing to see them pull that off if they are, because I can't imagine how many uh, many House Republicans are going to vote for it. I don't know, Annalise. If you had to guess, how many House Republicans vote for the omnibus?
0: I think it's going to be a really small minority. I think we're looking at less than ten. I want to say, I want to say six. Six. Okay. You mentioned this earlier, but I mean, it, it's definitely worth pointing out that you know the incoming chair of the House Appropriations Committee. Uh, Kay Granger was ob- is, was, you know, lacking from the statement announcing that they had a bipartisan bicameral deal um, that they th- that they released this week. So I'm sure she's going to be, you know encouraging her committee members to vote against this legislation. Um, you also had House Minority Whip Steve Scalise uh, sitting out a, mem- a a notice to members this week recommending a no on the stopgap funding bill. Um, I suspect he will be doing the same when it comes to the Omni. Um, and, and we've also talked about these additions to the omnibus, the Electoral Count Act and the Ukraine aid. Um, my personal opinion is there are many members out there that would, you know, absolutely love to vote for these pieces of legislation as standalone bills. But, you know, the omnivote is going to be a very partisan vote. And I, I don't see that the addition of either of these measures is going to be enough to flip someone who's a no to you know become becoming a yes. I just don't see that as a possibility. But Brendan, I'm really curious. What do you think? How many how many Republicans do you think vote for this?
2: I, I mean, I think the Electoral Count Act could get you a Liz Cheney. A Ukraine aid could get you a Liz Cheney. So that's one. She's still in the House. Um, maybe six is a good number. Um, I will take the under though. I will say you get five House Republicans voting for this, which I think is very interesting because I think it's important to appreciate that. A bipartisan spending bill is not going to be that much different when Republicans take over the House. You still basically just need what can get 60 votes in the Senate. So you have almost every Republican voting against this bill. It will be interesting to see how they turn around when they're actually in charge next year and have to have to negotiate doing one of these a very good chance they don't do an omnibus next year that they just never get that together and you end up seeing a lot of crs um but it's just very very interesting uh for me so i'll take five i'll take i'll take under six but i think we're in agreement pretty low number which does put a lot of pressure on the senate uh to get 60 votes but i imagine that's why the senate might want to vote first so they don't see that ugly vote and then still have to find uh 10 or 11 republicans over there to get it anyway uh other big news of the week kevin mccarthy I always have to check in on this. We were, we were all very interested to see this reporting that Donald Trump is apparently making phone calls on his behalf, um, trying to get these holdouts to support Kevin. Um, I'm wondering, I, I could look at this both ways. Do you think the fact that Donald Trump is making these calls is encouraging for Kevin McCarthy or discouraging news for him?
0: Yeah, I was I was interested to see that news, too, this week, Brendan. I mean, this is the kind of playbook that Trump world uses all the time. I mean, Trump is saying, you know, he's making these calls, right, so that if McCarthy is successful in pulling this off, he can sort of take credit. Um, I don't know for sure that that's happening, but I suspect that might be happening. I also suspect McCarthy was not asking for this, as I don't really think he wants to be in a position day one next year of, you know, feeling like he owes Trump something. I don't think that's a great position for anyone to be in. Um, But going through the holdouts and those who've been on the record saying that they're going to vote against McCarthy, you know, you've got Andy Biggs, who's running for speaker. Like, I don't think a call from Trump is going to change his calculus.
2: And apparently it hasn't.
0: That's right. And I think Matt Gates, you know, some of these other members have said, like, under no circumstances, right, they're saying never McCarthy, anyone but McCarthy. So I don't really think Trump calling these people, I guess, I don't know that it's, encourage, that it's encouraging me or discouraging me. I just think it has no impact.
2: I, so, obviously, it hasn't flipped anybody yet, as far as we know. Maybe it's holding off some people from opposing him. To be clear, like, Kevin McCarthy needs Donald Trump to be on his side if he's going to get this job. I, I don't think that is in question. I guess I would be, if I'm, if I'm being uh, the worrier here— if Donald Trump is calling up a bunch of people and a bunch of people are saying, hey, I'm, I'm your guy, but I can't vote for Kevin McCarthy, I wonder if it makes him think a little bit about whether and how much he wants to stick his neck out for him. Obviously, Donald Trump has just suffered a handful of losses uh, in the midterms. I, I'm not saying this is going to make him do a 180 on Kevin McCarthy, but um, I'm sure McCarthy wouldn't love it if, if he's calling a bunch of people and they're all saying, saying no and what that what that does to him.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I want to touch a little bit on this list of demands that conservatives sent out kind of late last week um, to, quote, produce results and not excuses, whatever that means. Um, so I'm not going to talk about everything that they kind of list out that they're demanding from leadership. But there were definitely a few that stood out that are going to be discussed, uh, I'm sure, at length this week and into the new year as they as they nail down the rules. Um, but I also think before we get into this whole laundry list that they're asking for, I think it's really important to say that seven people signed this, including a couple member elects. So, you know, we're talking about like three percent of the conference. Um, and so that's a pretty small minority, but, you know, it's also kind of the way that seven people can have when your majority is this narrow. Um, so moving into some of the things that they're asking for, okay, 72 hours to review final bill text and a return to single subject matter bill text. Um, seventy two hours to review final bill text is one that I think a lot of members would appreciate outside of these seven conservatives that signed this letter. Um, I think it's it's pretty reasonable. I know they waive this rule a lot when they're trying to move things quickly to the floor, but that's one that's kind of always seemed reasonable to me, and I think there can be some progress made. Uh,
2: so I, I find this one very confusing because there's already been a, there's been a rule like this forever. It's just that they waive it. Uh, when the bill comes to the floor, the Rules Committee brings it up and says, we're not going to uh, abide by this. I, I, if I recall correctly, um, when Democrats took over the House four years ago, we were in a government shutdown. Uh, I remember because that's when I was leaving office, the government was shut down. Um, but they, they, they finally got a deal together to open the government back up. And they too made a big stink about read the bill, provide enough time for members to read the bill. And the very first bill they did, uh, they they waived that rule. So i hear this all the time cool yeah three days to read the bill totally reasonable like hard to argue with in practice though it just sometimes it just doesn't hold up like when the government is shut down or when you're about to default or whatever or people want to go home for the weekend it just doesn't sometimes hold up
0: yeah i mean i mean functionally it's it's a very challenging role to to enforce and and uh, maintain maintain government uh operations so okay single subject bill matter text um that that one's never going to happen i just I don't know brendan if if you have anything
2: i mean an omnibus is a i don't know ten thousand subject bill it's just that's fine um congress just doesn't have the capacity to pass that many things the senate doesn't have the capacity to spend weeks at a time on um a little it's 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 very simplistic and it's fine and it makes sense like on a bumper sticker but in practice it just makes no sense
0: yeah that's a good way to put it um okay so they're also asking for no leadership involvement in primaries um, there's a lot of like sour grapes over congressional leadership funds, in particular, spending in primaries. It's an argument that I heard a lot from House Freedom caucus members as to why they were like never paying committee dues. Um, they are, you know, salty about different committees playing in primaries. So,
2: so this gets to more conservative members think they should be able to go out and recruit more conservative candidates. And, the Freedom Caucus members or whoever on the right thinks that leadership is meddling in those primaries and blocking their folks. I will just say from my experience, uh, leadership did not get very involved in primaries. We kind of just stayed out of it. Um, Ultimately being on the side of leadership in Washington didn't do a whole lot to help our guys anyway uh, as, as base Republican voters sort of rejected that. But I guess they now think that there was some evidence of the last election that Kevin McCarthy and his team were trying to, Clear the field for some of their preferred candidates, and you have Freedom Caucus members upset about that. I guess.
0: I mean, I think it. I do think it is kind of hard for you know some of these incumbents who are l- working closely with the NRCC, and you know they're kind of embattled and running for re-election. I mean, it's kind of you know it, it just doesn't seem practical for these committees to say like they're not going to be supporting. You know, they didn't make any distinction between incumbents or like open seats, so I don't really see how that functions either.
2: Yeah, I, you know, ultimately, the NRCC is operated as an incumbent protection tool, and I think they'd probably be upset if they were spending a bunch of money trying to clear the field in, in primaries. But this is one of those things where, how do you really enforce this? I don't know. Like, it, it, basically, they're trying to say, we should be able to be involved. The Freedom Caucus should be able to be involved in primaries, but you can't, um, which, again, is just like uh, rules for you, but but not for me kind of thing.
0: Yeah. Um, Okay. Rules committee must have conservative members. Um, You know, this is a committee that's also called the speakers committee. It's got enormous power. It's a committee that, you know, leadership kind of needs reliable allies on to move things to the floor. Um, I don't think that they'll, I don't, I don't see leadership kind of putting bomb throwers on this, on this committee, but I do think it's probably reasonable for, you know, conservatives and um, others to have conversations with leadership about, you know, committee selection
2: so the rules committee has the biggest majority spread of any committee as you said it's it's what leadership speaker uses to control the agenda on the floor and it's got something like a nine to four majority minority uh, allocation so you know it's it's done that way so that even if you have a rogue member of the committee for some reason can't vote for something that the speaker wants uh in a rule uh, that they can still move what they want. So I guess there are ways to go about this. You could set the ratio at whatever you want. So maybe, you know, giving one of the nine to a hard right person could be a, a give and ultimately wouldn't be able to really tank anything. Or maybe you increase the ratio to 10 to four, or 11 to four, and give uh, more spots for those folks. So this feels like there may be a give somewhere in there. Um, but you just got to be real careful that you're not, um, it's a slippery slope. You start, start adding more and more folks that you lose control of that committee. Cause that's ultimately how the house runs is through the rules committee.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. There are some other things on the list, like limiting funding, addressing the debt ceiling. Um, but I saved the best for last, uh, the first big ask on their demands, um, and you know, a central conversation going on in the house this week is returning the motion to vacate the chair. Um. This one's a little bit wonky. It's plagued Brendan's former boss. Um, so Brendan, I'm going to turn to you to kind of explain in layman's terms what it would mean for leadership if they restore the motion to vacate. And also, you know, any thoughts on if McCarthy is going to consider reviving this tool?
2: Well, first of all, I feel very validated that we're coming back to this because I wanted to talk about this very early on in Control podcast. And you all, uh, Benji, our producer, and Annalise, rolling their eyes at me trying to get in the weeds on this. But it is central. It is the issue that ultimately um, is probably going to decide whether Kevin McCarthy gets the votes. It's also the issue that's going to decide how long the next speakership is. Motion to vacate. This is the tool by which the House can recall the speaker, have a vote, Basically, a vote of no confidence, but more than that, a vote to kick out the speaker. Um, and when I was in leadership, both under Boehner and Ryan, any member at any time could trigger a vote to remove the speaker. It's what they threatened Boehner with. Uh, it hung over the heads of a <clears throat> hung over our heads in the Ryan speakership. In fact, when Paul Ryan said he was going to take the job. He knew he didn't want this hanging over him, and, and one of his conditions was that we we get rid of this rule, that we that we change it, how, how it can be used. Um, and regretfully, we kind of never got around to it. We just sort of ended up with a, a handshake agreement with the Freedom Caucus that they would never use it against him. So it wasn't really an issue um, for for Paul Ryan, although it was, still, it was still hanging out there, if anybody ever wanted to go back on that. When Pelosi took over, they changed the rule so that uh only the minority leader or majority leader can call it so basically leadership has to be the one moving a a motion to vacate um the freedom caucus wants to go back to the way it was where any one of them if on a tuesday they're upset with the speaker of the house can ask the entire house to vote to kick out the speaker um and you can understand how When there's only going to be a five-seat majority next year, uh, any vote like that could legitimately threaten the Speaker at any time if five of them band together to kick him out because they don't like, say, how an omnibus bill looks like. Um, So the issue, though, is that this was brought before the conference. Republicans gathered and they met behind closed doors and said, how do we want to address the motion to vacate? And instead of moving towards the Freedom Caucus and lowering the threshold, they actually made it harder. Um, instead of just having the majority leader be able to do it, you have to ha- actually have a vote in the conference and have a majority of the conference say you want to do that. And by the time that happens, I mean, goodness, like the person will, will just step aside. Um, so the, the, the House Republican conference is very against, and they're on record as against what the Freedom Caucus wants to do. But we're still stuck in this position where you have five people who say they're not going to vote for him, and they are making the changes to the motion to vacate central to what they want to do. So we don't know how this is going to shake out. We don't know if Kevin McCarthy is going to give on it. Um, if he does give on it, if he does go all the way back to what uh, the rule used to be, it's going to be incredibly difficult to uh, to govern, to, to do the things that he needs to do without fear of being taken out uh, at any time. Maybe there are ways to uh, lower the threshold to make it a little more easy to use than, than what they just arrived at, but that's something they are now talking about again in conference this week, having a meeting to discuss these things. This is going to be the issue that we're talking about either until it's resolved or right up until January 3rd, because this is ultimately the way you hold, in their view, the speaker accountable. And without this change, they don't have any way to do it. And that's why I've said, if they don't make this change, I think Kevin McCarthy is going to have an okay speakership. They can't really do anything to him for two years um, without this change. So that's what I'm going to be watching very closely. Um, I, I don't know if I'm willing to predict if, if it, if it uh, stays unchanged, um, but I can tell you, this is going to be the pressure point going into uh, the, the big day on January 3rd.
0: Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you got the chance to talk <laughs> got about that off my the, chest. <laughs> the motion to vacate the chair.
2: Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, we're now going to bring in our special guest for today. My friend, Mark Epley. Now I want to bring in our special guest for today. Mark Epley. Mark, welcome. Hey, Brendan. Good to be with you. Uh, Mark and I go way back to our time together at the Ways and Means Committee, where he was staff director of the Oversight Subcommittee. Uh, He then jumped with us to work at the Speaker's Office, serving as general counsel. Uh, He also worked at the Financial Services Committee, leading oversight there as well, worked at the Department of Justice. Today, he's a partner at the law firm Arnold and Porter, and he is a legitimate expert in the field of Congressional Oversight and Investigations. Uh, he's who I always call when I have a burning question about these topics. So very excited to have him here when uh, oversight is on everybody's mind. Um, Mark, let me start with the first question. Big news of the week. Sam Bankman Freed. Mark, have you ever had anyone avoid testifying by being arrested the day before a hearing?
1: That's never happened, Brendan. We've had, we've seen a lot of other very interesting things. You, you may, may recall, my during my time at the uh, Financial Services Committee, We actually had an investigation that touched on the collapse of MF Global. And in some ways, that's sort of a financial collapse that mirrors this to some extent, because it was actually customer funds that, that went away. So I want to ask you,
2: why do you think DOJ didn't just wait a day to hear what he had to say, we know a lot of the investigators have been examining his public comments to make their case against him. What 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 is the thinking uh, from from your perspective?
1: I, I think when you look at the charging documents, they had what they thought they had everything that they thought they needed it to to make a charge and make a charge stick.
2: Is there nothing more that could be gleaned from public testimony like that,
1: or he, they just they had him they have him dead to rights, and so why not just go get him? I think I think it's the latter that they have they they, they believe they had everything they needed. And there's there there might be a sort of a bias at the department that we don't need congressional investigators to help us do our work. I'm suggesting that that might be a bias on their part. And okay. so they weren't particularly uh, waiting on their uh, on tenterhooks to find out what he would have, what he would say. Fair enough.
0: I want to move us to Kevin McCarthy because we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about his quest to become speaker in the new year. We know that he's going to have a lot of challenges when it comes to his kind of laundry list of investigation topics and you know it's a huge task that he has in front of them him carrying out an effective and focused oversight agenda so just be curious your advice to him as he you know is laying out kind of the order of investigations and how he's going to approach this
1: well very good annalise pleased to be with you today really really nice to meet you well i i don't, I don't know if i want to lean in so far as to give um the, the leader advice but do it, I, do it do it do it all right very good well look the, the truth is that uh, the members of his conference, um, that whereas there are members that um, um, make it part of their um, engagement of matters of public concern to to really challenge leadership, challenge leadership's uh, capacity, their intelligence, their morality, their, their, whether they're good or bad. Um, the truth is members like to do the work of lawmaking, and one challenge and one opportunity for the leader and presumptive speaker is to task uh, committees to actually do the work of lawmakers, which is, in in large part, it's to examine the agencies under their jurisdiction. Um, it's also to second-guess their decision-making for sure, and we probably will get to that. But but to authorize programs as 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 you, as you know as a, a veteran from the hill year after year and including this omnibus spending bill that's uh, proceeding through congress now it it funds programs that haven't actually been authorized by congress or that that for which the authorization has lapsed and and believe and believe it or not when you when members have the opportunity to actually engage in fact finding and do the hard work of lawmaking uh, it it affirms what it affirms the reason for running in the first instance. I, I think that that sort of work it sounds a, a bit sort of pedestrian, or, or but but the truth is that helps develop good order and discipline in your conference when you're doing lawmaking.
2: Yeah, I, I figured you would defend the practice of oversight. Is, is is a legitimate thing that Congress can do? But so how do they how do they make sure that they're balancing doing really legitimate? legislative purpose-driven oversight with some of these things that can sort of get
1: away from you, if you will? Sure. Well, look, the way I like to think about it is um, when Congress speaks to matters of public concern, that's sort of when their power's at the zenith, right? So back when it came uh, to light that the IRS was treating different applicants for exempt status, differently based on their name and policy position. There was Dave Camp then was the chair. His uh, ranking member was uh, Sandy Levin. They joined in a bipartisan effort to demand uh, that the IRS come and, re- and uh, explain themselves. And even at that time, President Obama said they, they screwed up, give them up everything that they need. That's reflective of the fact that this was speaking to the matter a matter of almost highest public concern, the IRS targeting people. So at that point, their power was at its most robust. I think the challenge, Brendan, is making sure you're actually speaking to a matter of public concern. Sometimes it can be very narrow and that your audience can be fairly uh, niche, but it's got to speak to them in, in a way that's actually um, – <laughs> that's there's the legitimacy to it that's for that's where you get your legis- legitimacy if it's clear that you're trying to score political points use this authority in some way to to hurt your your political competitor your the legitimacy goes away your power goes away people stop abiding your requests um, it's sort of self-fulfilling in that way
0: and do you think McCarthy is kind of maybe overreaching in terms of all of the laundry list of items that he's put forward that he's going to kind of, on day one, begin to investigate?
1: I mean, my sense is that this, there's a laundry list because there are a lot of different constituencies for which um, they want to hear, they want disinfecting sunshine to pertain to one or more things on this list. So I, I don't know if it's overreaching. I guess it'd be overreaching to say that we will get to the bottom of all of these things. I, that's probably more than the than Congress has in the way of its capacity or in terms of their their object's willingness to cooperate. But um, I I think it reflects a desire to sort of exhaust the laundry list of complaints.
0: Yeah, I think you made a really good point, too, about, you know, the public needs to be behind some of these. And even the Republican Party has indicated that, you know, there are some topics that they're just kind of ready to move on from. I mean, we've seen a lot of polling, even, you know, Seven Letter produced a poll that Um, you know, kind of rank choice, all of these different investigations and asked Republicans after the midterm to decide which investigations they were really urging House Republicans to take up. Um, We saw Hunter Biden was kind of at the top of the list there. And then we saw things like COVID origination really down there at the bottom. And and then comparing those to the, you know, legislative items like the economy and inflation, um, you know, investigations were super low. So I think you you really hit it when you said, you know, we need to be sure that these investigations kind of have buy-in.
1: That's right. And And look, you can speak to – one of the things that we sort of need to take note of is that it's a very closely divided Congress. It's hard to pass a law – even when you have a supermajority in the Senate, the, uh, President Obama had a really challenging time getting Obamacare together, ended up having to use two pieces to get it done, and that he, he had a majority in both bodies. Here we have a closely divided Congress, so using uh, uh, making law that can affect change that people care about is really challenging. So you can affect change through bringing scrutiny to agency decision-making to affect agency behavior. Uh, to develop facts. I mean, if I think from the report of the Republicans, to the extent they can develop facts that demonstrate that the Biden administration policies don't work, that is a gain for them. So they're using their authority in, in that way. You all, one thing I, you know,
2: I've, I've heard you talk about many times is these the sort of order of operations in effective oversight. And it's fact-finding, as, as you've said many times, that needs to happen first. I won't ask you to opine on the legitimacy of a hunter Biden investigation, but one thing that strikes me is it seems as though the committees uh, talking about this have gotten pretty far out on the ledge in terms of suggesting they have stuff. And first,, my first question is, um, any risk in sort of declaring that kind of thing? But secondly, they have been in the minority they didn't have a whole lot of control of these committees in the first place. What do you think that they were being able to do to suss out things that they say that they have uncovered uh, as the minority doing oversight
1: right. Right Well, look, this is a bi- this thing cuts both ways. I think there was a prominent Democrat on the uh, on HPSI, the, the intelligence committee that continued to that promised that there was, that, that, that the shoe would drop on President Trump and it, it, it didn't that, that other shoe didn't seem to drop at least in the way of really new evidence mm-hmm. touching on uh, Russia gate and so on. Um, look, in the minority, your power is fairly limited to actually most agencies if you in the minority make a demand of an agency they typically treat it like a FOIA request just uh, as if a uh, media or individual citizen made a demand and so that's a ponderous long uh, exercise for which you may or may not get anything that's particularly material so i doubt they got the goods that way the other way you can you can find whistleblowers you can you can find whistleblowers um, over time, the law governing whistleblowers and the protection thereof has gotten quite robust. And, and so you can get uh, someone with a complaint or maybe an aggrieved person with a complaint, um, and they can be a, a high-quality source of information. So perhaps that's where it's coming from, Brendan. I don't know. They'll, they'll be asked to prove it up. Annalise, to your question is, if you get out there, you sort of say, I got the goods, and you don't. Um, you're, you're in credi- trouble. Your credi- Well, your credibility goes away. People stop listening.
0: So we have two men that have emerged as the primary faces of this oversight effort that we're talking about. Um, we have Comer on oversight and Jordan, Jim Jordan on the judiciary. Um, I'm curious how you see these two committees working alongside each other, you know, kind of while guarding their jurisdictions. It,
1: it's my sense they actually will. Look, there is, there, there's always some competition as between committees. Uh, the members that are on those committees asked to be on, those that are chair uh, or subcommittee chairs, they they, they contended for that. For particularly in the Republican uh, conference, we don't do it purely on on uh, seniority. But even then, where the Democrats, if you wait around long enough, you want it really bad. And so there is uh, a natural competition as between the committees for jurisdictional interests. That's why we see it actually crypto, right, is some desire, House Ag, to try to get to the FTX thing first or um, – uh, and so on. Um, in this case, I, I think a, whole, a, a great number of the sort of senior professional staff uh, that Mr. Jordan has with him served, previously served at off, uh, Oversight and Government Reform. Uh, and some of those stayed at, at over, Oversight and Government Reform. Now it's called Committee on Oversight and Reform Corps. Um, so there's, there's actually a natural affinity there. They, they know each other well, I think you'll actually see more cooperation leadership. I hear this from a lot of committees that leadership commends and is uh, commending uh, inter-committee cooperation. One of the things that CORE has going for it is a staff of 70, it's a big, big staff, and they have a commercial grade document review platform like you'd find at my law firm or other big law firm, so you can drop a zillion documents in and search them the other committees don't have that capacity. So those are one of the things that commends cooperation. I'm curious, you
2: you talked about how the administration can kind of run around uh, the minority and, and uh, burn time. Uh, I'm curious how you think the administration will respond to a lot of these investigations. Obviously, we know they're going to be Uh, very aggressive. There was also, uh, I would argue, a bit of a breakdown in terms of responsiveness to congressional inquiries uh, over the last few years. Um, So if you are the Biden administration, for example, and I know this is sort of an abstract question, but thoughts on how they might approach a a pretty aggressive
1: House majority trying to get to the bottom of a lot of issues? Look, a lot of the people that you'll find in these agencies are hardworking, high-minded people. They may be... uh, political, right? that, that they, they truly believe in the agenda. They, um, but the, I think they'll ask themselves questions like, is there a legitimate core to the question that's being pursued here or not? If the answer is yes, I think you, you'll sort of see a reluctant effort to figure out how and what ways they can comply in a way that will allow their agency to continue to operate. So, to be one of the things to keep in mind is every single one of these agencies has its own sub subculture. Uh, not everyone's sort of uh, political, in fact, very few are political hacks. you know they that they take pride in what they do. So, if you went to the Department of Interior, they're really pride proud proud of how they take care of uh, federal lands, and I could go on and on. So these when these inquiries come in, uh, the principal in one of these agencies, they take it seriously because they think, oh, this could this could affect my reputation it could affect a uh, well or not so well on how i've executed the mission as i've understood it so most of these agencies are going to kind of take them serious in the first instance if it doesn't have um like i said sort of a core a legitimate fact-finding function you're gonna you'll see a lot more uh, you'll see slower movement but looping all the way back to our first observation If it speaks to a matter, a high, high matter of public concern, the agency is going to yield. That's just kind of how it works.
0: One thing that I'm, you know, kind of keeping an eye on with respect to McCarthy, he's obviously trying to collect these 218 votes that he needs in January. So he's kind of doing a little horse trading here behind the scenes, kind of promising some rabble rousers, as we'll call them, you know, key committee slots to conduct some of these investigations. Um, I kind of look at it two ways. You know, obviously, it can delegitimize some investigations if you have someone who's maybe, you know, more concerned with getting a soundbite than getting to the bottom of a legitimate issue. Uh, But it can also serve as a function to keep some of these folks busy and occupied.
1: Sure. No, I think that's right. Um, I think that It's it's of a I think it's of a piece with what we talked about earlier in terms of doing lawmaking functions, reauthorizing programs. If it's too much to reauthorize all of the Justice Department, how about just do the Office of Justice, Juvenile Justice, and Delinquent Delinquency Prevention? Maybe we could find some bipartisan work to do there. Uh, But but you're right. I mean, to the extent that members are engaged in, in in investigation, it. It takes up time. I, you know, it, it only does so to some extent, right? Because these, a lot of the, the, the work is done by staff. Um, you have a longer investigation over time where members will invest themselves in it and become a subject matter expert over, over time. Um, but it, chiefly what you're getting, Annalise, is you're allowing members to speak to what they perceive to be matters of public concern back home or with their base. And so it's satis- it's satisfying in that way, right? As if it's not sort of t- filling their dance card with activity.
0: Okay, this is a really nuts and bolts question, but it, what's the arc of a typical investigation if you were to just kind of zoom out and say, you know, step one, step two, step three for someone who, you know, really doesn't have any experience with how these investigations play out?
1: So I'll put this in a sort of high-minded thing as I want to do. Look, I think that... Um, the congressional investigation does something that no other thing or entity can do. In a criminal case is a fact-finding mission, but it's super narrow. It's the it's the government trying to prove that um, a certain set of facts that, that the guilt of of the person charged, and you really only get so much visibility into the entire story. In a civil action, you get a little. The aperture is a bit broader. Here's the one place where, actually, a A story can be told about sort of what really happened, all the various players in it. It it brings light to these uh, all the characters in a in a in a sort of uh, real life play that you wouldn't otherwise see. You don't. It's 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 unusual to see a journalist who you know she's empowered or has the resources to go out and do all that work themselves. That'd be really unusual. So, I, I I took that detour to simply say. It starts with what you believe to be a compelling true story or at least a compelling theory of the case, mm-hmm. right? Like the idea that this government money ought to go for this sort of vague purpose and things went wrong, okay, so you have a, I have a theory of the case. Then then the investigators begin to think how is it that I can develop facts with documents and testimony to prove this up and then ultimately just share, share it with Congress and the American people in a way that uh, is accessible. So I, that's kind of how I think about it in the most high-minded sense. I mean, other times you get things that drop on your lap where it seems like an agency screwed something up badly. I don't know. Uh, and we, we could talk about particular things if you want. And it's pretty simple, right? We're just trying to figure out who decided what when upon what authority. Um, yeah.
2: So I can't get you out of here without asking about the I-word, impeachment. Um, Obviously, a lot of Republicans ready to move very quickly into that space. I wonder, A, how does that make you feel? Um, But also, what do you think the House's capacity is to do... Uh, impeachment in maybe the most thoughtful or, or proper way. Uh, for background, Mark and I spent a lot of time sorting through an effort to impeach the IRS commissioner when we were in the Speaker's office. Ultimately failed. There were some House members who thought that that was very important, thought that they had been, that the the committee had not been responsive in a way that, or the, excuse me, the, the IRS had not been responsive in a way that it should have, and they wanted to impeach him over it. Um, I, from my perspective, I thought it felt a little rushed, um, but you know, this has become very political. So I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on impeachment and, and what me- House members should be thinking about when they're talking about going down that road.
1: So on a level, the impeachment thing is really pretty easy. So there when there's a, a motion that may have to sit for a bit and then you can insist upon the House voting on it and a bare majority, you can impeach someone. There's really not more teaching in the Constitution or the rules than that. To do a, an impeachment that's based upon the development of facts hey this judge this lifetime appointee you know he should be removed then there's some expectation that you do the hard work there you have the uh, the administrative office of the courts and and maybe some other investigatory material that help make the case for, for the house but I think that if you don't if you don't actually undertake to do the full-blown impeachment hearing develop facts um, you are, you're taking that incredibly powerful tool, which is to, to force the Senate, insist upon the Senate doing a trial and voting. It's an extraordinary power. I think you break it. I think you make it a, it, uh, a, a thing of no account. That's one of the things I'm critical of this outgoing uh, leadership because the, the tendency to go to the courts, to get help, to, to make people do things, has huge risk associated with because the court disagrees with the House's predicate for suing. That takes away House power going forward. People take note of that, right? So pressing every single advantage risks actually undermining the authority and the power of the House.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining Control. We really appreciate it.
1: Oh, what a treat to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Mark.
2: And we'll talk with you next time. Obviously, a lot going on over the next couple weeks that we'll be watching very closely. Thank you for listening to Control.
0: Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy and corporate engagement.
2: Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.